Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by John Wolstetter, author of the book Sleepwalking with the Bomb. John is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and the London Center for Policy Research, and an expert in what is likely the most terrifying area of national security and foreign policy, nuclear proliferation. After hearing John speak about some of these threats in a recent lecture with the cheery title, Rethinking the Unthinkable, Why Failures of Imagination, Projection, and Strategy Court Nuclear Catastrophe, we decided we had to have him on. Thanks for joining us today, John. And thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you and your audience. So first question, John, is what is the biggest threat in your view facing America today from a national security perspective? I think the biggest threat from a national security perspective is the nuclear threat, even though it may not be quite as immediate as the kind of things we've seen uh, in Paris and, uh, and elsewhere. I think that because the amount of injury that a single event could inflict dwarfs anything else. Uh, a single nuclear weapon going off in a single crowded city would kill easily more than 100 times more than were killed on 9-11. And I think a shock like that would be hard for any nation to take. We see how uh, here in the district we were thrown into a tizzy back in 02 when two dopey punks were shooting one person per week for four or five weeks and the city was practically in lockdown. So obviously these kinds of events and with today's television uh, amplifying them in a way that it could not have been done uh, back in 1945 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the, the impact would be shattering, I think. Now, we've been dealing with nuclear weaponry for decades. Do you believe that today there is a more imminent threat than there's been in the past? And related to that, do you think that the most likely source of a nuclear weapon to go off on U.S. soil would be a state actor or a non-state actor? Well, a non-state actor currently does not have the ability to fabricate a nuclear weapon, taking your second uh, question first. So there is state involvement in that a state will transfer to a non-state actor if such a thing occurs, or else a non-state actor in theory could uh, pilfer a weapon, but if the weapons are at all secured in any meaningful way, it's going to be very hard for them to set it off. Now, in the first question, imminent is, is a word that gives me a little bit of a problem because that uh, sounds like it could happen tomorrow. It's not the imminence, it's that the nature of the threat has changed in a way that makes me uh, very worried. And that is that whereas during the Cold War with the superpowers, and essentially, although China had a few weapons, you were talking about uh, Britain and France, of course, uh, and later Israel, unacknowledged, had some uh, weapons. You were talking about superpower uh, geopolitics, and the people who ran Russia were, on the whole, they were sane. They were people, uh, they weren't fanatical, and they weren't suicidal, which is why from the second day of the 13-day 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, Nikita Khrushchev, having precipitated it, uh, started to try and find a way back, to pull back. But I don't have the same confidence that fanatical Islamists, whether of Sunni or Shia variety, uh, in you know, 
Shia in Iran, Sunni in, in Pakistan, or, for example, uh, in North Korea, just the general nuttiness of the place, I don't, and paranoia of the place, I don't have similar confidence that they can be trusted in a crisis to uh, exercise that kind of behavioral restraint. Indeed, I think there's a very significant risk they, they don't. And that's what makes it so worrying, uh, rather than a question of the exact timing. I and mean, after all, during the Cold War, theoretically, the Soviets at any time, like we could, could have launched a devastating first strike. But we didn't think of it as imminent, because there was at least some measure of management of the, of the rivalry. Since you raise Iran, and Iran has obviously been in the news frequently of late, uh, not the least of which in, involving Yemen even, and their sort of Shia spread, you talked in your speech that I referenced in my introduction, uh, basically saying that you felt that it was a fait accompli that Iran would end up with a nuclear weapon, or at least that's how the Obama administration is handling it. What would be the knock-on effects of a nuclear Iran? Well, a nuclear Iran will happen unless the Israelis stop it. And I think they have a chance, it may be somewhat better than the published accounts suggest, because they have a way of surprising. But there's no question in my mind that President Obama never really changed his mind about the acceptability of a nuclear Iran uh, from before when he ran, declared for president. He just had to dress it up because Americans were not that comfortable with the idea. Uh, so I think that what it would do in the region is it would ignite immediately a nuclear arms race. Saudi Arabia has already, and they've openly said as much, they've already had conversations with Pakistan. Pakistan has a hundred or so nuclear weapons is on its way to doubling its arsenal within the next uh, decade or so. Uh, and you know, they would sell bombs, uh, bombs for petrodollars. Uh, the Saudis wouldn't start a nuclear program, which takes decades to get going and really go into high gear. They simply buy these things, and they would put them on their aircraft, which are uh, you know, 30 minutes to an hour's flight time from many targets, uh, and or else they'd have rockets come in, and those rockets would come with crews to operate them. So the Kuwaitis would do so. Egypt doesn't really have the money, but they might find a way to try and do it. So you'd have, and maybe Qatar, you'd have several uh, nuclear powers. And this isn't a region where there is no protocol of trust where you can call people up and manage things. The hotline, which was set up after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, worked reasonably well uh, because we and the Soviets were both committed to trying to avoid a catastrophe, though from time to time risks were taken. Uh, uh, during that, that period. There's no uh, risk management here. There's no experience in the command and control of nuclear weapons. You'd have small, vulnerable arsenals where you might feel a pressure to use or lose. There'd be a significant uh, risk of an actual nuclear conflict, which would, could come about again without deliberately being started by one party or another, but a panicking reaction or uh, otherwise flawed reaction during a crisis. So do you think that the 
sort of the countries that we've mentioned or the groups that we've mentioned, be it a Russia, a China, an Iran, a North Korea, etc., do you think that strategically, in their minds, they would rather draw America into overseas engagements so that it hurts our morale and costs us trillions of dollars? Or do you think they would still ultimately attack us directly if they thought it was in their interest to do so? Well, uh, I think certainly those two are not inconsistent. Uh, we look. We are not going to make a major uh, troop commitment over there anytime soon. Uh, perhaps not for a generation, unless we're hit much harder than 9/11. But there is always the temptation that if they think they can launch a disabling strike or one that can't be traced to them, they might be uh, tempted to do this. And I, I gave one example in the talk. And again, this is talk all over the place, as I noted in my talk. Uh, among people who look at these things, it's, and it's known to the people who are developing these weapons, including the Iranians. It isn't 100% certain that we would be able to determine uh, who set off the bomb. Uh, because I mean, a terrorist group might claim responsibility, and that might help us uh, a little, but ultimately you have Iran, North Korea, and uh, um, Pakistan, you had an Islamist Pakistan, and we don't have signatures for those weapons. That is to say, we cannot forensically detect those. In the case of Iran, of course, if they have them, they haven't set them off, and they have enough material so they might already have a bomb or two. The Pakistani and North Korean tests have been conducted underground and sealed effectively so that it's very hard, because you really need in the first few days to get things out of the atmosphere, certain detect certain uh, chemicals, uh, certain things in the air, uh, to be able to say, well, who is this from? We have signatures for Russia, for China, and so on, and for anyone else that's tested, including our allies. Uh, and um, that would be something we could match, but if we don't have a sample to match, it's going to be awfully hard to figure out who, uh, who gave it. And they know this. This is, again, I'm not giving anything away that is not known all over the nuclear community. It's been discussed for a very long time. We've been talking about nuclear weapons. I want to shift to a doomsday weapon that Americans are slowly awakening to, but I think still sort of only have a vague knowledge of, and that's the EMP. So what is an EMP? Describe the extent of the damage that an EMP, if exploded over part of the United States, could cause. And tell us who of the countries out there has access to the technology for an EMP today. Well, the technology for EMP is the technology to build a nuclear weapon and to have a rocket that can launch it to a high enough altitude where its long-range effects can be felt. Because when you detonate a weapon at a very low altitude, you have a lot more to worry about the blast of the weapon and the thermal effects of the weapon and radiation. But when you de detonate it up in space, a couple of hundred miles up, two, three hundred miles, you get much more powerful pulses because they interact with the Van Allen radiation belts that were discovered in 1958 by our first satellite, Explorer 1. And there's a series of pulses, E1, E2, and E3, that are emitted by a nuclear weapon. The first one is a very powerful high-frequency pulse that gets inside your surge protectors of your computers, your phones, and other things that run on the electric grid and 
basically fries the circuits. In modern uh, silicone uh, chips, which are in everything these days, there are countless ones even in automobiles, uh, these things are 10 million times more sensitive than the electronics of 50 years ago, uh, vacuum tubes and that sort of thing. The uh, second E2 is a weaker pulse. It's much like lightning, which our surge protectors work against now. But with your surge protectors uh, disabled, it would be like a burglar, a second burglar seeing an open door and going in and grabbing something without having to break in. And the third E3 is similar to a geomagnetic storm. It's a low-frequency pulse, a very long wave that can couple into the electric network and cascade for hundreds, even thousands of miles, slam into the big transformers in the network and fry them. So you have high and low frequency vulnerability uh, and been very little work done on hardening, which is not that expensive when you consider the trillions of dollars of investment and the vast dependency of society. Uh, there are pessimists or skeptics who say that you, know, you may destroy 10 or 20 percent or something of the network, but you're not going to get the whole thing. That would still be vast damage. And if the congressional panel that looked at it uh, was correct, in a worst case, if the uh, those who are uh, more pessimistic about uh, how we could deal with this, you could see 90 percent or 100 percent of the uh, network taken out. And if that happens, you can't recover. It's not like out of a disaster or like a hurricane where you have edge recovery, communities that bring in supplies, rebuild for you, house people who've been displaced, as happened after Katrina, for example. You don't have that edge recovery. In the case of the network, there are some transformers in big systems that uh, take several years when you order them to bring them in and put them online. And we don't, you know, at least on what is known publicly, we do not have an adequate supply of that. So it's a huge risk and for really an amount of money uh, that's a fraction of the value of the network. Let's just pick a round figure of 10 billion. A lot of the estimates are even lower. You could harden this thing, uh, key elements of it, and make it a good deal less vulnerable. And the next generation of computers could be built with more protection in. So in a doomsday scenario, if an EMP were exploded somewhere over the eastern seaboard, in a worst-case scenario, what would be the casualties? Well, in a worst-case scenario, the detonation would be over Dorothy's, Kansas, in the center of the country. And at 300 miles altitude, you would have a circle, 360 degrees, with a radius of 1,470 miles. Let's call it 1,500 to make life easy. That covers the continental United States, lower 48 states. Uh, and in a worst case, you could see within a year, 90% uh, of the population dies. As you don't have electric power, nothing works. You can't even get food to market. It would be catastrophic beyond belief. And if you do it over the eastern seaboard, you could center an explosion at a lower altitude, say uh, 20, 30 miles up over Pennsylvania. And you would cover about, if you centered it there, 600 kilometers or 375 miles, let's call it 400. And what you would do with that is take down the eastern interconnection, which supplies 70% of the country's electric power. There are three grids in all. So these are, again, there's no way to test this definitively unless you actually do it, which uh, I think for understandable reasons we don't want to do. 
uh, and find out that well, gee, only 10% uh, was destroyed. What, well, what if the uh, pessimists are right and you lose the whole thing just testing it? So the safest thing would be with this to, to prevent this kind of worst-case catastrophe is to harden the networks and make it much harder for them, make them resistant to electromagnetic pulse, and take away a weapon that really is a terrorist or a small-stage dream against a large power. In Israel, they have the Iron Dome system. Are America's missile defense systems up to snuff? Well, we have some capability, but not as much as we should have. Uh, Iron Dome is a, is a small system that is highly effective, 85-90%, against little rockets that are, are fired, uh, short-range rockets, which ranges sometimes less than 10 miles or up to 50 miles or something. It was jointly developed with our technology. But what we have deployed here in the States is on the east and west coast, we have some, uh, we have some missiles. Well, actually, we, they're defended, actually, from uh, two places on the west coast. Uh, they have the Vandenberg Air Force Base, and then they have some in Alaska. But you can defend against the approaches uh, to the pole from the, the north, uh, from the west, or from the east from there. And you have some coverage. The missiles are effective some of the time. We have Aegis missile cruisers, which really have a very impressive missile system called the Standard, which has shot down, uh, destroyed a satellite which was coming down, which is as hard as hitting a missile. And we could use them as a picket fence. We have 60 of them to protect the country. We have no protection at all in the south. And what they're trying to do now is a thing called Aegis Ashore, which is to take the system that works on the ship and sit it on a base on land. And if we put one down there in the south, we can protect the approach from the Gulf, which is uh, uh, right now is totally unprotected. And North Korea recent, uh, in 2013, at the end of 2013, tested a missile, which was able to put a small payload in orbit and uh, travel south to north, which is a very hard way to do. Most of the orbits go... Uh, from west to east and go with the Earth's service. So they have the technology to do it. And if I can throw in one more thing on this, Ben, what's scary is that when you are doing this kind of a weapon, it's easier in some respects than firing a traditional intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM. Those have to be highly accurate. Uh, really, they have to land, if you have a hardened target, you have to land... Uh, inside of a mile or a half mile to have a chance to destroy anything. Of course, if you're talking about cities, those are much softer targets. But the other thing is, a lot of the weight of their payload is the heat shield, the re-entry shield to survive the heat of re-entry so the warhead actually makes it to the target. When you set something off in space, you don't have the weight of the heat shield. Uh, you don't have to have pinpoint accuracy. Dorothy's Kansas will do. And uh, finally, that means you, you can use a very light payload because a weapon that is efficient to, uh, to emit EMP is actually a much smaller and lighter weapon than those that are efficient for explosive yield, and blast damage and thermal damage. So uh, as little as maybe uh, 50 uh, 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 kilograms, 110 pounds, would suffice for a super EMP weapon and that would be more effective than uh, a larger atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb, which are actually a hydrogen bomb is very inefficient for EMP. It's 
main damage is explosive and thermal. How conceivable is it that the right-sized missile could actually be smuggled into the U.S. and launched with the chemicals of an EMP bomb? You don't launch it from inside the States. You put it on a freighter, and you launch it from a few hundred miles offshore. Uh, and the freighter is not going to be, Hi, I'm a North Korean freighter. As everybody knows, North Korean freighters don't, you know, North Korea is not exactly known for its commercial products. You, get, you, you fly a flag of convenience from some, uh, there are several African nations and other nations whose flags of convenience are widely used. And you, you, you just have it, you fire it from there. And uh, to do it with uh, the uh, relatively low altitude, call it medium altitude, shot over Pennsylvania, you could use a Scud missile of the kind that were fired at the Israelis in 1991 in the Gulf War. Uh, they have the range, they're not that accurate, but they don't have to be. And because they'd be set off uh, without making a full re-entry, they wouldn't be breaking up as they did on re-entry uh, during the Gulf War. And a longer-range missile would be needed to uh, fire uh, one in, uh, over Kansas. But the uh, Iranians have longer-range missiles. They've tested launching uh, from a barge a missile in an EMP mode, meaning it goes up to a very high altitude rather than an up-and-down uh, trajectory like you see with an ICBM. So they've tested this kind of thing. They know about it. Anybody who's building this stuff knows what this stuff is. I'm not disclosing anything that somebody over this can say, aha, we didn't think about that. Wallstead have told us, now let's look into this. They know this stuff. We've talked a lot about U.S. technology and, and capability and how really our infrastructure is not up to snuff today. Um, but regardless of the technology, you need policy as well that matches the threats that we're facing. You talk a bit about a couple concepts, one of them being mirror imaging and the other being projection and how that undermines our foreign policy and even pervades our intelligence community. Speak a little bit to those concepts. Well, mirror imaging is projecting one's own cultural values onto others. We think they think the same way we do. Uh, and this works fine if you're dealing with somebody who in fact does but do we think that fanatics think exactly the same way we do I think that you would say that if people who had uh, were uh, for example if ISIS got a nuclear weapon or if Iran had one they have a very different attitude toward let's say mass casualties uh, uh, I the uh, Rafsanjani, the former Speaker of the Parliament and the former President of Iran, uh, Ali Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, said in December 2001 that in an exchange with Israel that killed 5 million Israelis and killed 15 million Iranians, that Israel would be finished as a country, but Iran would not be, because Iran's population back then was over 60 million. So, a three-for-one nuclear exchange for him is a reasonable trade. Three of his to kill one Israeli because he obliterates Israel. There is no Western leader who believes that of his, their country, and any Western leader who said anything like that would be immediately removed from office by a public outcry and the outcry of his fellow leaders. So they look at the uh, casualties, and to them, nuclear war is thinkable in a way that it is not for a civilized society. The other is a failure of imagination. 
and that's failing to figure out that the other guy is not always going to pick the form of attack that you think is most convenient. Uh, and at Pearl Harbor, for example, we the only warning that uh, existed for Pearl Harbor was watch out for saboteurs who might set off a bomb. We didn't think the Japanese would attack us at Pearl Harbor. We thought it possible in the Philippines, which they did the next day. But we also didn't think they were capable of it because we didn't think their torpedoes would run shallow enough to clear the torpedo nets. And the Japanese had modified their torpedoes and done practice runs so they could do just that. So it was a failure of imagination. And in terms of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, our record is very poor in terms of anticipating when countries we don't consider friendly across the nuclear threshold. We were surprised in 1949 by the uh, Soviet Union's uh, atomic bomb. We were surprised in 1964 by the Chinese atomic bomb. We were surprised in 1974 by India's atomic bomb. And although we knew Pakistan had crossed the nuclear threshold, they took us by surprise when they tested in 1998 uh, for the first time. And when we got to the... Uh, at the end of the Gulf War, when uh, the UN inspectors got to Baghdad, they discovered that Saddam was maybe a year or two away from the bomb, a lot closer than we thought. And finally, with North Korea, they told us in October 2002 that they had a nuclear weapon, but we couldn't confirm it. And since they don't always tell the truth, I mean, they never do, basically, we uh, awaited, and then four years later, they set one off. John, you've been very generous with your time. I'd just ask one more question. If you had a megaphone and you could deliver one message on national security and the threats facing America to the nation, let's say during the Super Bowl, what would that one message to America be? I would say that the nuclear threat is growing and that the fact that it hasn't happened before does not mean we'll continue to be so lucky that we cannot allow Iran to become a nuclear power, in any, uh, a nuclear weapon state because to do so would start a Mideast arms race and raise the risks of war significantly and expose us to risks of certain kinds of surprise attacks that we are simply not adequately prepared for. And we need to start looking at this as unpleasant as it is. We need to rethink the unthinkable. The name of the book is Sleepwalking with the Bomb, and it covers many of the topics you've heard today. And the author is John Wolstetter. John, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me, and thanks to your audience for tuning in. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.